This is a Triple J podcast. Pack. This might be a weird question coming from me. Yes, I, I'm fully aware. But have you found that you're avoiding reading or listening to the news these days? You might find it too depressing or negative. And, you know, like, to be totally honest, I understand a lot of the time it can be depressing and negative. I'm Joe Lauder. This is the Hack Podcast. Yes, we're a news and current affairs show. And I'm going to say, if you're listening, you're probably into news, but we're going to find out why more Australians than ever are avoiding the news. First, though, drugs that make you smarter and help you study. You might have even taken them, but it could be too good to be true. Hack! You know how they say that we can only access 20% of our brain? Well, what this does, it lets you access all of it. You know, a lot of kids in my school take ADD pills. They say if you're lazy and unmotivated, it makes you super energized and productive. Really? On Triple J. Yeah, for a long time, there's been this idea that some drugs, maybe your mate's ADHD meds, will help you study when you're desperate and you're right on deadline. Some people even call them smart drugs or study drugs. But new research says that these smart drugs might not be making you so smart after all. If you're someone that's used them, let me know if they've helped you. Or if they haven't helped you, I don't know, and you've found yourself cleaning the house for five hours instead of writing your essay. Text in on 0439757555. April McLennan's been chatting to some people who've tried these when they were cramming for their studies. It felt like sort of taking a slow release coffee, and, but that sort of felt like it, it was over an eight, eight hour period without the sort of jitteriness or of a coffee sort of thing. That's 28-year-old Zach. It's not his real name. He's talking about using study drugs. They're also called smart drugs. They're like a step up from no-dose, and some people use them because they think it keeps them hyper-focused on the task at hand, like cramming for exams or finishing off a last-minute project. You had to be careful, though, because otherwise you could just end up with a really, really organised room and not actually get any study done. You sort of could go off into uncontrollable tangents. Study drugs are usually some form of ADHD medication like methylphenidate, aka Ritalin, and dextroamphetamine, but there's some other ones too. And lots of people who don't have ADHD get this kind of medication off their mates who've actually been diagnosed. Are there students that were willing to part with their um, psychiatrically prescribed medication? Yeah, there was never any sort of shady deals down um, dark alleyways to to get a, to get an A. 26-year-old Chelsea has also used study drugs. Yeah, just like pure hyperfixation. Um, once you're in the zone, you're just like in the zone. You don't really feel weird, like in your head, I guess. But yeah, once something's in front of you, you're just like, here I am. <laughs> Zach and Chelsea aren't alone. Heaps of people do study drugs. But there's new research out there that shows taking these drugs if you don't have ADHD might actually make you less smart in the moment. That's what happened to Chelsea. And just had an assignment due and was like, let's go, hyperfixating on this assignment. <laughs> the next day I went to proofread it and it was like total gibberish. Like, <laughs> what was I doing? It looked like it sounded like I was drunk. <laughs> so I think I'm just going to stick with chugging coffee and popping no for now. Hack on Triple J. 
That was April McLennan reporting. Alex says on the text line, personally, the drugs make me feel that an impossible task is now possible, so it at least helps me to get the job started. Someone else says, hey, I took ADHD pills for two and a half years and I had to stop taking them this year as they made me so incredibly depressed. It wasn't worth your minimal boost of happiness or getting stuff done for that one hour. Now, Dr. Elizabeth Bowman is from the Centre for Brain, Mind and Markets at the University of Melbourne, and she is a researcher who did this study into research drugs. Dr. Bowman, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Hey, great to be here. Just to start with, when we talk about smart drugs or study drugs, a lot of the focus is on ADHD medication. Why is that the main ones that we're talking about here, or the main ones that people use? Well, I think... Well, I think the main ones that people use is coffee, but um, in terms of of prescription medications, um, they're really widely prescribed for ADHD um, across people of all ages. So they're kind of a big presence in, in, in the world and they have a reputation because they're for treating a disorder of attention. So, you know, people go, oh, you know, I hear they make you energetic, I hear, you know, they give you better attention. But if you're taking them and you don't have ADHD, you might get a different outcome. Yeah, just on that, can you tell me a bit about how you set up your experiment to test if they work? Like, did you make people race to, I don't know, cram for an exam or like (laughs) do an essay on Nietzsche or something with minimal time or something like that? Um, Our centre looks at uh, decision-making with risk and uncertainty and complexity. So we have... um, cognitive tasks that we can get people to do in a lab setting and they're very nice and controlled but they're they're analogous they're like the kind of problems that people have to face in the real world uh previous studies like this in the literature looked at sort of more simple tasks like memorizing strings of numbers or memorizing um words or or reaction time but uh our task it's uh it's called the knapsack task it's it's a a, what we call a computationally complex task, but it you have to sort of optimise an outcome under constraints and you get a time limit to do it and you have to submit a solution. Uh, so and, and it's like problems that we see in the world where like even even grocery shopping. So, you, you know, you have to choose items from the supermarket. You only have $20. How do you optimise that? Um, right, know. so it's a bit more difficult than just memorising yeah, like other yeah, studies. Yeah, it's more complex. And we know in the workplace you have to do many complex tasks and you have to be able to change between these tasks uh, easily as well. So we thought it was more, now, more, more like what people have to deal with. So what did your research find about how people performed when they were on these study drugs? Uh, well, we found that eight people uh, with the drugs uh, were took much longer to submit their solutions for these these problems that we gave them. So like, they took 50% longer. They took way longer. Oh. Uh, we can also measure how many combinations of solutions they tried before they submitted. So they were trying many, many more combinations. But the combinations are kind of more random. The less the quality went down. So in the end, their productive, their their performance in terms of uh, was the solutions that they were presenting close to optimal or optimal, uh, we found that that went down a bit. So they're spending a lot more time, they're spending a lot more effort and activity, their results are less. So if you think in terms of productivity, it goes down. So they worked harder and they had a worse result. Exactly right. Oh my God, it's like the total opposite of what people expect. (laughs) How did it compare to when they were working? Because you were able to compare for these exact same people on the placebo. So you were actually comparing them against how they normally do it. Yeah, yeah. So um, we we got uh, these participants in for four different sessions. So 
uh, we could try them in all the three drugs that uh, we were testing and under placebo, so that's just a sugar pill. Um, and it was blinded, so I didn't know what they were getting on the day and they didn't know what they were getting on the day. But we found that the people who were really good at these tasks without the drugs are the ones who showed the biggest drop in productivity. What does this... Um I mean, there's obviously a misconception, like even, you know, people messaging in now saying like, I've used this before when I've had a big day at work. I feel like it helps me get a lot more done. Is there this misconception that people think that they're doing better work here because maybe they are working, it sounds like, more frantically? Well, it can make you feel like you're more motivated. Um, and it can, it can certainly keep you awake at night, but I think as we heard, you know, you can stay up all night trying to write an essay, but the results might not be great. Uh, so how people feel about it might be different to the particular results that they're getting, uh, particularly with these kinds of complex tasks. What are the dangers or concerns about people taking these drugs for these reasons? Well, we don't actually have much good quality data on long-term usage in people without ADHD with these drugs. Um, But we we do know that people are more likely to report anxiety and irritability and insomnia and these kind of unwanted side effects of of using these, these drugs. Right. So we don't actually know very much or do we know much about like what is how these drugs affect people who haven't been prescribed them for certain, um, you know, because they've got ADHD or something? Well, it's in people who don't have ADHD, it's a little hard to study because people are uh, accessing these drugs in in various kind of off-the-books ways. Uh, So, you know, it's much harder to study than like doing a clinical trial of patients. Uh, So that's why we don't have great great data. But, yeah, certainly the, the whole... Uh, increase in activity can lead to yeah anxiety. So your heart rate can go up, your blood pressure can go up. Uh, that can lead to irritability. And you might just not get the results or the, and, <laughs> the, and, the grades yeah. that you were expecting, right? Yeah, well, uh, it's kind of a, it can be a trade-off. You know, you might be signing up for trade-offs that you weren't expecting uh, in terms of like focus versus flexibility and that sort of thing. We've got so many messages coming in about this. Someone says, I have ADHD and I take dexamphetamine. It helps me keep my mind quiet to do my while I do my studying. It really helps me. But that's obviously, like you said, someone who yeah. is well, using we, it as it's, prescribed. It's different with ADHD. Yeah, these drugs have been used for many years uh, as part of ADHD treatment. Um, one of the major things that they do in the brain is they, they dump out a particular kind of neurotransmitter. Uh, so in, in a brain without ADHD... Uh, this is more likely to disrupt systems than to uh, help them along. Someone else says, James, who says he's a GP, I wouldn't be surprised if the people that do find these drugs very helpful actually might just have undiagnosed ADHD. Neurotypical people probably don't see the same benefit. Uh, Dr Bowman, it's so fascinating to hear about this. I really appreciate you coming on Hack and having a chat about it. Thanks for having me. It's been great. That is Dr Elizabeth Bowman and she's from the Centre for the Brain, Mind and Markets at the University of Melbourne. Hack. To me, it was sexual assault and the government at the time recognised it as such. I do not wish this matter to stay in the Liberal Party that I fought so hard for, so I accept that I will no longer be sitting in the party room. On Triple J. 
Hey, I'm Joe Lauder, and you're listening to Hack on Triple J. Coming up in a moment, we're going to get kind of meta because I want to hear if you're avoiding the news and where you're getting your news from. Of course, Hack, because you're listening, so I know you're getting your news from there. But first, there's been some very serious allegations raised in Parliament House about sexual assault and harassment. Yesterday, Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe used what's known as parliamentary privilege to call out Liberal Senator David Van. Today, she gave some more detail about incidents at Parliament House, and there's been a really serious response already, and the Senator's been kicked out of the Liberal Party room. He strongly denies the allegations. Shalila Madora is in Parliament House, and she joins us now to explain it. Um, Shalila, just to start with, just quickly, can you tell us what is parliamentary privilege? Yeah, sure, Joe. So in a nutshell, it means politicians can't face legal consequences, things like defamation, for example, for anything they say in the chambers of parliament. So that is the Senate or the House of Rep and also in committees as well. But that protection doesn't extend to us in the media. If we repeat those statements, we are still bound by those certain rules of what we can and can't say. Right. So can you just explain how we got to this point with these allegations? Yeah, so this all kicked off yesterday when Senator Thorpe used parliamentary privilege to accuse Liberal Senator David Van of sexually harassing and assaulting her. Here's a snippet. The discourse in this chamber and elevate how we treat each other. Transparency, honesty... Order, Senator Thorpe. Uh, ...relay that I'm feeling really uncomfortable when a perpetrator is speaking about violence. Senator Thorpe, that's inappropriate, that's inappropriate and reflected pulling the member and I have to ask you to withdraw that. Joe, shortly after this, Senator Thorpe did withdraw those comments. She says that was because of rules in the Senate that stop you from commenting on someone's character. You may have heard in Question Time, for example, that people are always withdrawing statements. And that's because you're not supposed to comment on a person's character, only what they've said or done. So Senator Thorpe withdrew those comments, but flagged that she would have more to say on these particular allegations. For his part, Senator Van was on 2GB this morning and said that allegations were untrue and that he was shattered by them. But he did confirm that he moved offices after a complaint by Senator Thorpe was made in 2021. And Senator Thorpe did get up in the Senate today to outline more details of those allegations. Here's some of what she said. I experienced sexual comments and was inappropriately propositioned by powerful men. One man followed me and cornered me in a stairwell and most of this was witnessed by staff and fellow members of parliament. No one witnessed what happened in the stairwell as there are no cameras in stairwells. I know there are others that have experienced similar things and have not come forward in the interests of their careers and fear they would be presented to the world by the media in the same way that I have been today. Shalila, did Senator Thorpe name anybody this time today when she was speaking in the chamber? She didn't. She also alleged that there were multiple people who acted inappropriately towards her. Senator Thorpe said that she was scared to leave her office and asked that someone um, accompany her to and from her office, particularly after those late night Senate sittings. Senator Thorpe also said she informed several people of these incidents, including the leadership of the Greens, the party she was in at the time, her colleagues, the President of the Senate and senior Liberal Party members who were 
assured her that the Prime Minister was also informed. Additionally, all this was happening at the time that Brittany Higgins had made allegations of rape in Parliament House. And so the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, was looking into the issue of women's safety in the building. Senator Thorpe said that she disclosed the allegations of sexual assault to Commissioner Jenkins as part of those interviews. Senator Van um, also made a statement under parliamentary privilege today to deny the allegations. Here's some of what he had to say. Let me say this in the clearest possible terms. Senator Thorpe's allegations are concocted from beginning to end. <clears throat> Nothing that she has alleged about me is truthful. No such exchange occurred between us. There is no interaction that could conceivably resemble what she described today. So why did Senator Thorpe make these allegations now? Oh, Joe, it's fair to say that it's been a really difficult, murky, kind of challenging week in Parliament, particularly for women who work in this building. Private text messages between former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins and her partner David Shiraz have been linked to media. Um, Ms Higgins' former boss, Linda Reynolds, who was Defence Minister, is now suing Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek for defamation regarding the case. And there's just, like, lots of politicking about who, who knew what about the rape allegations and when they found out about them. So safety of women in Parliament House has been a really big topic, and that was actually the topic that Senator Van was speaking about yesterday. Senator Thorpe said under parliamentary privilege today that she was compelled to speak yesterday and couldn't stay silent anymore. It definitely sounds like a really challenging time there. So what, what happens now? So Senator Thorpe has said she doesn't want to take the matter to police. So in a legal sense, that sort of, you know, could be the potential conclusion there. But politically, there's still a really long way to go with this. Earlier today, we heard from the Liberal leader, Peter Dutton, who said in light of the allegations, Senator Van would no longer be allowed in the Liberal Party room. That's actually a pretty big deal. That means that Senator Van won't be part of the decision making in the party. And it also means he has to sit on the crossbench in the Senate. Um, and Mr Dutton also ret- referred those allegations to the new parliamentary system that's set up to investigate matters like this. Senator Van says he welcomes an investigation so that he can clear his name. For her part, Senator Thorpe has called for extra security in the building, including more security guards and cameras in the stairwells of the building. Right, so pretty significant response already. Um, Shalila, I really appreciate you coming on and updating us about this. Thanks, Joe. That's Hacks political reporter Shalila Medora. And if that's brought up anything for you, you can always call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-RESPECT. Hack. People ask me, did you see what's happening? No. Did you hear what's happening in the world? No. I have no clue. On Triple J. Yeah, let's be honest. There is a lot of news out there that's depressing and sometimes it's easy just to not tune into it or not read it. It might be stories about how expensive everything is right now or climate change or the pandemic or just really terrible tragedies. There's a new Australian research out today and it shows that there is a big drop in Gen Z consuming the news and, you know, it was already actually pretty low for Gen Z. Obviously, the elephant in the room here is that we are a news and current affairs show Um, And I don't know, maybe you guys think it's hypocritical for us to talk about this, but it affects your lives as well. It's not just us and our jobs. And look, honestly, as journalists, we don't really get the chance to turn away from the news cycle. It is part of our jobs. And there are times, honestly, that we want to as well. 
In a moment, we're going to chat to the Australian author behind this research about news avoidance, but I want to know what you think, and you can be honest. 0439 757 If you found yourself avoiding the news, or if you especially, I don't know, tune out of bad news, I want you to tell me about it. It's 0439 757 before we get to the research, we've got Nathan Nigidula has been asking people if they're still checking the news as much as they used to. Russia invades Ukraine in the... 20,000 people are tonight in the path of the mega fire rolling... The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced. Victoria will be in lockdown within the next 48 hours. Here are the to assess the damage from the record-breaking disaster first Food donations are surging as the cost of living crisis worsens with people from all walks of life... How do you feel after hearing stuff like this? Enlightened or just a little depressed? Um, there was one point where I moved overseas and naturally I just kind of stopped listening to the news and I realised I was so much happier for it because the news is extremely depressing. As a journo, it's kind of my job to consume the news, but it's really not for everyone. Whether that's because you find it really impacts your mood or you've got better stuff to watch or... Good evening. Maybe you just can't get past the news voice. So this is what my voice normally sounds like. But then I can just be talking and then just slowly add it in and then eventually I'll sit here. This mask is sticky. It's gross. And I feel disgusting. A survey from the University of Canberra has found that nearly 70% of Aussies avoid the news to some degree. I went for a stroll to hear what people had to say. Do you find yourself avoiding it? Definitely more and more as I've gotten older. I think it just depends on my mood. Sometimes I'll be interested in what's going on, but sometimes if I'm tired or fatigued or just don't feel mentally like I want to check into that sort of stuff, then I, yeah, just avoid it. Do you care about the news? Some of it. I don't necessarily avoid, but I am more selective about what I do choose. Do you care about the news? Partially, yes. And do you find yourself scrolling past posts you don't want to see? Of course, yeah, 100%. What kind of stories? Um, Sometimes politics. Sometimes tax stuff, depends what it is really. If it's something that's quite maybe triggering on any level, I just tend to avoid it. And to my surprise, I ran into someone that still reads print. I like keeping informed and understanding the world around me. And how do you keep up with the news? Is it on your phone or on TV? On my phone. I still buy the newspaper quite a bit, which is probably a bit funny for my age, but yeah. It's easy to understand why you might want to avoid the news. After a pandemic, a period of hectic natural disasters like fires and flooding, and now the cost of living crisis too. It can be tough hearing about it all the time, especially when it's there 24-7 now. On social media, I definitely do, and I also get notifications um, on my phone from different media outlets, so that's how I sort of keep up the date of what's going on. But I think at home, for me, it's just like relaxation, so I don't really watch the news per se, but I definitely try and keep in touch. Hack. On Triple J. That was Nathan Nigadula reporting. We've already got lots of opinions about this. Jack says, I deleted Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat because I didn't want to see news. And Mo says, I used to read the news often and then I followed the news cycle really closely. But since COVID, I tuned out and I only read headlines once a day and I expand my sources to overseas media as well. Nick says, we stopped watching the news about two years ago during the height of the pandemic and it's been amazing for the anxiety as a young family in Brisbane. Thanks so much. Keep your messages coming in on 0439757555. To find out a bit more about what's going on here, I've got the lead author of that research that I mentioned, Professor Sora Park from the University of Canberra. Professor Park, thanks so much for coming on Hack. I'm really interested in this research. Can you tell me what you found out about Gen Z specifically in the news? 
Yes, so Gen Z, they are very light news consumers. More than half say they only check news once a day or less. And they're like two thirds are not interested in news and two thirds avoid news. And when they do consume news, they consume it mainly through social media. Were you surprised at just how much news avoidance there is with that demographic? Well, not really, because Australia has typically been very high in news avoidance, and it was going up since 2017. So since then, about we increased about 12 percentage points, and now 69% of Australians avoid news. And um, yeah, it's because there's so much negative and serious news around us. And the top reason for avoiding news is because there's just too much coverage of subjects that they're not interested in. That's really interesting because I feel like, um, I guess I imagine with technology as well, um, you could get more and more targeted news or even what you follow on socials. It means you can kind of curate for what you're interested in. Yeah, that, that's true too. But then because there's just so many platforms and so many devices, it, it becomes really hard to manage all of that. And in this year's study, people are also very concerned and worried that they might miss out on important information because of all these personalization. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, I guess. So people are worried they might miss out on something, but then um, when there's too much, they you know, switch off. Mm. Tony on the text line says, I read the news on the apps in the morning, Monday to Friday, but I don't read it at all on the weekend. Someone else says, daily life is already overwhelming. I have no more mental room for it most days. It's hard because being aware is important and I feel selfish sometimes. That's from Cleo. Um, Dr. Park, thinking back to the pandemic, you know, it was every day there was really serious news, really heavy news. It was a part of everybody's lives all the time. There were people who, you know, weren't journalists who were watching press conferences. Mm -hmm. This trend in news avoidance, it seems so much of it is, is it a knee-jerk reaction from the pandemic and from that saturation or is it a bigger trend as well? Uh, I think a bit of both. COVID definitely has had that impact that people are now so sick of, you know, news about the virus and um, the pandemic, they are switching off, but it's also a very long-term trend that people are less and less interested in news. And it's happening, especially among women and young people, that they are switching off of news, not just because it's too much politics and coronavirus, it's just generally they are much less interested in news than they were before. And can you tell me a bit about what your research found about the difference between the news that people were getting um, on TikTok versus Instagram and who they're following on those platforms and how it differs in terms of how they're getting their news? Yes, so now Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, like all these video-based platforms are becoming really popular, especially among young women, uh, young people and also women. Um, but the news they see on those platforms differ slightly. So people who use Facebook or Twitter will see mainstream news sources while they're on it. But people on TikTok are much more likely to see news from ordinary people or social media celebrities. So it's the type of news that they access are quite different between platforms as well. Does that concern you that it's mostly coming from influencers on TikTok? Yeah, it does. A, yes, it does. And people, the users are also worried about it as well. So um, 
Yeah, because they're not really vetted sources. You, you don't know the quality. It could be mixed up with misinformation. And so because of that, younger people who use those platforms to get news, while they find it entertaining and easy to access, they are also very wor worried about, you know, misinformation and, you know, becoming, you know, in echo chambers and not seeing other people's viewpoints. Younger people are much more worried about those things as well. Um, does that also point to an is issue with trust? Like maybe younger people trust um, people that they follow on social media, maybe more than traditional media? Yeah, we do see that as well. So younger people generally are very, very sceptical of all mainstream media and things they see on digital platforms, because I guess it's the way they have grown up with it, that they know to be mindful and sceptical and second-guess everything. So they have a heightened mistrust on everything and they don't trust mainstream news because they don't think it's relevant to them. Or a few years ago, we asked, do you think news represent people like you? And younger people were the most likely to say no. So they are, you know, um, turning away from mainstream news and going to their sources of trusted news. And just lastly, like obviously, um, you know, young people avoiding the news is bad for media outlets and potentially, you know, shows like ours. But what are you? What is your bigger, broader concern here? Just quickly, like, what is at stake here of people tuning out more generally? Yes. Yeah, so the most important thing is they might really miss out on critical information. Like, it's okay to avoid news once in a while and then go back to it. But what if there's something really important that's happening that, you know, you have to make decisions in your life and you miss out on important information? I guess that's the real concerning thing is that people could, you know, become, you know, less informed. That was Professor Sora Park from the University of Canberra and she's the lead author of that research. Thanks so much for hanging out. I'll be back tomorrow with a shake-up. Bye. Hack on Triple J.